Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. My guest today is Olga Muri. She's a former lawyer at the California Supreme Court and founder and former president of the Nepal Youth Foundation, helping tens of thousands of children in rural and urban Nepal. Can't wait to get started. Oh, welcome back. My guest today is Olga. Olga, how are you today? I'm fine. Thank you. It's a beautiful day and I'm well. Yes. Excellent. Well, I'm so happy to have you on the show. As I mentioned, you're the founder of the Nepal Youth Foundation. The author, Isabel Allende, said she wants to be you when she grows up. She says that you're never tired, your <laughs> eyes always shine, your laughter is contagious, and your heart is so powerful, you can hear it singing a block away. I think this compliment is important because as the former president of the Nepal Youth Foundation and the founder, you helped over 45,000 impoverished children in Nepal. The foundation focuses on, focuses on four branches, education, freedom, health, and shelter. You've educated tens of thousands of children, freed more than 12,000 children from slavery, nourished 16,000 malnourished children. And so for the past 35 years, you've been dedicated towards helping these young folks. In your book, you say that the memories, or in your TED Talk, you say, the memories that will fill your heart will be centered on things that you did to improve the lives of others. That, my friends, is the secret to a happy life. I'm curious, what are some of your favorite memories that fill your heart from your time at the Nepal Youth Foundation? Oh, so many things. I think uh, one of the things that really stands out, and this is a memory that's now about 35, 36, 37 years old, is when I first went to Nepal and uh, and uh, went on a trek in the mountains. And I'd never been be there before. I'd never been to Asia. And I was just blown away by the children there. I had never seen children so poor. They didn't have decent clothing. They didn't have shoes, most of them. They they just were, were just, they, I didn't see a single toy all the time I was there. They were the happiest kids I had ever seen in my life. And it made me realize that what you need for a good life is not stuff. I've tried to, to live by that to the extent that I can. Uh, it was just, it was really an eye-opening, magical insight into what's what what's important in life and they all the the thing they they all wanted to go to school that was the thing they they begged me to send them to school most kids in nepal didn't go to school at that time and i just thought you know for this for the price of a, a dinner in san francisco i could send a kid to school for a year in nepal and uh, so that's how that's how it all started and then when uh, we started, when I started really working with them and saw how how happy they were and how grateful for anything that you did for them, everything was every little tiny thing was a huge, huge thing for them, and it made me very made me very happy. And I came back and I said to myself, "I'm never going to complain about anything again in my life." <laughs> there it is. They they've got the secret. Whatever it is. <laughs> Well, they certainly yes. were grateful for everything you did for them in, and in celebrating life's many achievements. They held several birthday parties for you, one in which they all sang Happy oh, Birthday, yeah. another one in during the earthquake in 2015. They all came to your house even after the earthquake. The party was supposed to be at four, and the earthquake happened at noon. But you still invited them, yeah. and you had 50 people yes. sleeping in your garden. Tell us about that. Tell us about that experience. Okay. So those are actually two different stories. I have a friend in Nepal, a very close friend, and she is the ultimate party giver. 
And although I am not one big one for parties, she had invited 600 people to a birthday party for me. 600. I didn't know I knew 600 people. And the party was supposed to happen at four o'clock on the, uh, 20, uh, on the 25th of April, 2015 for my 90th birthday. And it was the most elaborate thing she had arranged for dancers to come in from the villages and it orchestra, the whole thing. And, and I wasn't very happy about it, but she had done it. And everybody was getting ready for the party that, and it was supposed to start at four o'clock. And guess what? The big earthquake in Kathmandu happened at noon that day. And the whole town was just shaking, shaking, shaking. And it was terrible. It was, you know, buildings were falling, people were being killed. And, and of course, you know, nobody bothered to say, I can't, I can't come except one very, very, um, uh, polite, uh, Irish lady who was a, who was a, uh, expat. She called me, she, oh, I'm so sorry. My house is shaking. I cannot come to your party. <laughs> anyway, so uh... there was no party, but there was a party in a sense because my house in Nepal has a big garden. And there are very few open spaces in Nepal. It's a very, very densely crowded. And everybody ran out of the houses. They were afraid to stay inside. And they were even sleeping in, in the traffic circles and traffic. Anywhere there was open space. And before I knew it, my garden was filled with about 50 people, all who would come to take refuge because it was an open space and it was, uh, it was uh, not dangerous. And, uh, so I had no idea how I was going to feed 50 people. I mean, they were there for three days, uh, including, uh, some of the young women who had come in from the villages who we had rescued from slavery. I'll tell you about them later from, from kitchen slavery, like bonded labor. And they had come in as a surprise to dance for my 90th birthday. And they'd never been to the city before, and they got stuck in this earthquake, and they were terrified, terrified. And they arrived weeping and traumatized, and they slept outdoors and uh, on the tarps. And I said to and I said to them, "Listen, girls, I'm from San Francisco. We have earthquakes all the time, smaller or larger. And guess what I do when there's an earthquake? If it happens at night." I wake up and I think, oh, an earthquake. And I put the cover back on me. <laughs> and so that night, that night, it started to rain. And so the girls ran into my house. They slept, sleeping all over the floor. I had no room on the floor. And, and I, they woke up in the middle of the night and the ground was shaking. And they, one of the girls started to whimper and the other said, Olga, mom said, you, you know what you should do if there's an earthquake. <laughs> and so they all put their sleeping bags over their heads and went back to sleep. Anyway, so uh, uh, somehow my cook found a huge, huge copper pot and he made rice in it. And then I have a vegetable garden. So everybody chopped vegetables. And after a few days, it was, it was, uh, it was a little bit like a party, although they were terrible aftershocks uh, and it was it was a traumatic experience but the funniest part was uh the children at our children's homes the uncles and aunties took them outside and we're very very uh, forward-looking and so we had actually equipment outside we had tents we had sleeping bags we had water in case of an emergency 
And so they set up a, a, these tents in a field and they cooked outdoors. And I was leaving, I had, a, I had already arranged to leave Nepal. I had a ticket for four days after the earthquake on April 29th. And I stopped by to say, uh, to say goodbye. And the little boy said to me, Mommy, when can we have another earthquake? <laughs> because they were out sleeping outside and running around the fields and they were just so happy. <laughs> well, I think it's pretty magical. So that's magical. how I ended my time. My time. Yeah. Yeah, pretty magical was, that you're wonderful. able to bring people together in a time of crisis and to be so generous as to open the gates of your garden and bring people together for a party. Yes. Yeah, it's I, felt, it felt good. And then after three days, uh, when I started actually to run out of water, and I was leaving myself for the U.S. Uh, they they left the garden, and it was it was a traumatic time for everybody. And yet, except the a, little boys, a little beacon of <laughs> of joy that you were able to bring. So about the the Nepal Youth Foundation, one thing that I find so interesting is that all your staff are Nepali. You're very strategic about Correct. entering into new arenas, but more importantly, about how to exit. And one example is that you built. 17 hospitals in the dis different districts at the time, helping with malnourished children. You were educating mothers in all aspects of child health, including nutrition, but using only Nepali food, only things that they could get in their village. And the mothers gained an average of 12 pounds. The kids felt a lot better. And the remarkable part is after five years, these hospitals were taken over by the government. Now, around the world, thousands of NGOs have foreign contractors and implementers who come in, and they're from all over, and they help work things out. What was important to you about having a locally run project, especially one that wouldn't be run by the Nepali Youth Foundation forever? Well, the important thing was, uh, I mean, people always say to me, Olga, tell me how you started this program because we want to do something similar. And my advice is always find the right local people and, and let them run with it because they know their culture. They know how to do it. They know what to do. And uh, uh, you know, exercise some some oversight, but that is it. It's the local people, and we have a fabulous staff in Nepal. I mean, I have to tell you, they're just imaginative and smart as they can be, and absolutely devoted to the cause. Um, and so that was the that that's our that was our beginning. I I found the right people. I find the right person. I should say that. Uh, Som Panaru is now who has succeeded me as president, and he got a you know he's been with us for 25 years now. He saw how I operated as president, and he was able to take over very easily. So that that that's my main my main point is that you have to find the right local people and trust them because they know they know what to do. And then the other the other aspect of our of our work is that. What we start, we finish. We don't leave a program. We don't leave a child until everything is, is completed. In the case of a child, if, we, if a child enters our program, if they come to live with a children's home and they're two, we're with them till they graduate college and have a job. And that's not an easy commitment to make because, because it's a long-term long commitment, but we've never, we've never failed that commitment. And that's true of our programs too. The problem with child malnutrition in Nepal was tremendous. So many children were dying of malnutrition. And when, when we started uh, our program, uh, we decided, uh, actually the way we started is interesting. 
we used to, there's one children's hospital in Kathmandu, government hospital, and we used to go there and if somebody couldn't afford something like a, a scan or a, a medication, then they just go home and do without it and, and sometimes die. So we used to go there and we'd ask if somebody needed something and then we'd pay for it. So I was there one day and there was a little girl in, in the bed and she looked so terrible. She was extremely malnourished. And her father was sitting there crying by her bedside because what had happened was she was so malnourished and she'd gotten pneumonia because of her condition. And the doctor had said she needs this expensive antibiotic that he couldn't afford. And so we said, we'll pay for it. We did. And I went back a few days later and the child was not in bed. And I said to the doctor, what happened to this child? He said, we sent her home. He said that antibiotic was so effective. I said, but she was still as malnourished as she was when she came. That was the reason she was here. And he said, most children in Nepal are malnourished. We can't save a hospital bed for a malnourished child. Wow. And that child went home and she died. And I found out that there were, that it was not that unusual an occurrence. There had been a number of instances like that. So we decided that we had to do something about it. And we opened a facility, at first a 10-bed facility, which we called the Nutritional Rehabilitation Home, where children could come when their active illness was over and then uh, be, and who were malnourished and then, and then be built up to normal health and train the mothers in how to take care of their child, not just nutrition, but everything. Because in Nepal, you don't go to the hospital by yourself. You go usually with your mother who stays with you throughout sleep in the same bed. And so it was a ten, little 10 bed facility. And we had one principle, which was, this is another aspect of sustainability, no foreign supplements. We would use only uh, material that they could get easily and cheaply in the village to rebuild their health. And simultaneously, while the child was being restored to health, the mother was educated in not just how to feed her child and how to cook food to retain its nutritional value and combine different foods to do that, but also all aspects of childcare. And we started with that one ten bed facility and it was so successful that we started to build more and more of them. And we built, we ended up building 17 of them throughout the country. And our board said, well, this is, and our board said, this is all wonderful, but we can't, we can't run 17 hospitals indefinitely. Uh, and so we, we convinced the government that we would build these hospitals and we would train everybody. We would impart, we had huge knowledge now about nutrition. And, and then we would pay all the expenses for three years, fourth year, We'd pay 75%, the government would pay 50%, fifth year, 50-50, sixth year, the government would take over. And guess what? It's happening. Wow. We have only one hospital left and the government takes it over in July. And we, 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 the main hospital at Kathmandu we're keeping uh, under our control because uh, it's a center for, for training doctors and nurses and, and all kinds of people about nutrition. So. So we'll keep that. But the other 16 are all 
will all be under government control by July, and they're running them well. One of the things that I love about everything that you've been able to do is exactly that that cross sustainability. Yeah. You know, you were able to do not only yes. sustainability in terms of the programs, but in terms of the people. You have you started a, a home for boys and a home for girls called J House and K House, named for the locations it took in orphans, abandoned and disabled children, beggars, child laborers, and street kids. And the children take care of each other in a way they may never have gotten care before. The older kids wash the younger kids' clothes, they put them to bed, teach them how to do everything from dancing to building Lego. And that that kind of you're teaching kids to kind of create a new generation of caring people and families. Now that you've been doing this for, for many years, what do you think your vision is for the next few generations of Nepali youth? Well, um, we're, we have changed as the, as the, as the uh, situation of the country has changed. Uh, we have a children's village uh, called Olgapuri Village, which means in Nepali, Olga's little oasis. And we'll probably keep that. It has uh, four children's homes. But not different children. They're the same children. If they come to us when they're two, three, four, five, six years old, they live in the, the little boy's house or the little girl's house. They're two separate houses. And then when they reach high school age, uh, eighth grade, they move next door to the senior girl's house. So they live with us until they graduate from high school. And then uh, the vast majority of them go on to college and we support them through college. So uh, that will continue. I hope uh, the need for it uh, isn't isn't uh, as great as it is now because uh, uh, the parents can better afford to keep their children and support their children. Uh, that's one of the things. We're also heavily into vocational training because in Nepal, a large percentage of young men and, and men go abroad to work, usually in the Gulf countries, where they're terribly, terribly exploited. They work very, very hard for very little money, and they come back sometimes in body bags, and it's it's a terrible situation socially because uh, children are without their fathers for maybe 10 years, 12 years when they're growing up. Women are without their husbands. It's very, it's a very bad situation socially, and the 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 strange thing is that there are jobs in Nepal, the an unemployment rate is huge, but the, the, they're not trained for them. So we have opened at Elgapuri Village, we have a vocational training center, and we train six or 800 young people a year in the building trades, uh, welding, carpentry, uh, electricity, and, plum and plumbing. And over 90% of these young people get jobs. They can stay in Nepal. And now we've started something quite unique, which is we're doing this remotely. We have fitted out vehicles with the equipment needed. We'll go to the villages and train, uh, and train young people, and they can stay in their village and work. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, that's very important. We are also, I think, are, are in the future for the next, well, for the next decade at least, we're going to be working with uplifting the uh, lives of Dalits. Dalits are the untouchable castes of Nepal, and they are, they are oppressed and discriminated against beyond anything that you could imagine. Although the, 
although the laws favor them, uh, in especially in the towns and villages, which is most of Nepal, most people won't let a, many people won't let a Dalit enter their home. They can't. Some won't allow a Dalit to touch them. Uh, if they if they use a a, a drinking vessel, they, it has to be sterilized. I mean, they're considered unclean. They're not. Uh, many are not allowed to go to the local uh, well, where they so they can't get drinking water. And they, by every measure, their their lives are about as as grim as you can imagine. So we have a plan to go into a village in in East Nepal, which is one of the lowest Dalit castes. Believe it or not, there are gradations of Dalits too. So that there are low caste, there are low Dalits and and a little bit higher Dalits. It's it's occupation based. And we're going into this uh, community, I think 932 people. And we want to uplift them in every way we can. And we're very well equipped to do it because there's, con there's terrible malnourishment, almost starvation. We're very good at that. We're very good at training for jobs. They have a hard time getting jobs. They have no skills whatsoever. We started the first child counseling center in Nepal, which is very active, especially during the pandemic. And these people have very lowest self-esteem, which is one of the barriers to their success. And we can work with our counseling center for that. And uh, we've, we've done this kind of thing before with, uh, with, a, with a group of young Dali women that we, 20, we took 20, it's about 15 years ago, we took 25 16, 17, 18-year-old Dalit girls who had just graduated from high school and did well on the college entrance exams, brought them to Kathmandu, put them in the hostel. Uh, some of them had never seen a flush toilet or or a, a, a an eating utensil. That That's how remotely they lived. And, and we put them in good schools, gave them, you know, extra English training, computer training. And that Every single one of those women are now professionals, doctors, social workers, journalists, really, really successful. So we want to do what we can uh, to uplift this, this community and uh, with the hope that perhaps it will be a, a model for other. Uh, there are $3 million in Nepal and probably hundreds of millions in India. It's the same system. And uh, yeah, it's possible it could be used as a model to uplift other Dalit communities. So that's our that's a big that's a big undertaking, and and it'll take ten or twenty years. Well, one of the things I find most remarkable about all this is that it started with a few just a few scholarships. On your trek in 1984, you decided to sponsor four yes. scholarships, and then soon you became involved in many yes. different aspects of the foundation. But you've once said that your role is just to love the children and to listen to them. Why do you think that this is important? And what has the experience taught you? Well, these kids, the, the ones we have, have taken under our wing. They're, they've been, many of them were abandoned. Some of them were beggars at a temple. Many of them have been abandoned and not sent to school. It's in very, very terrible shape. And they need, they need that kind of nourishment a lot. We have our counseling center to help them if they have psychological problems. 
that well, they don't have to have problems. They they just counseled regularly because they they need need that. And and I just have, I mean, at this point, we have such a capable staff. I mean, I'm on the board and I you know give advice when I'm asked, but mainly I just play with them and love them and have them over to my house and we laugh together and dance together and and I think it's important for them to have somebody like that in their lives. Absolutely. You said in your book, each child arrives with a unique, heartbreaking story. What they have in common, however, is a chance to begin a new life, an opportunity to start over. We're going to have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with Olga Murray on Hello Sonoma. Hello, Sonoma. Welcome back. I'm here with my guest, Olga Murray. We were just talking about her experience with the Nepal Youth Foundation, which she helped found. And one of the things you mentioned earlier, Olga, was what we start, we finish. And I think more than anything else, one particular initiative of yours encapsulates that point. For those who don't know, tell us about your incredible achievement to face and eventually outlaw the child slave practice known as Kamlari. This was one of the most satisfying experiences of my life and one of the most incredible achievements I think that NIAF has done. In 1990, we were reading, I was reading a local newspaper, the Kamadu Post, and the Post said, okay, uh, Maga Sekrante, which is the name of a festival, is coming in February, and uh, the labor contractors are getting ready to go to West Nepal, this a certain area of West Nepal, the Dong Valley, and to buy girls, buy children, for what? To become servants. And I just couldn't believe it. And so, who is our, now the president and was our employee, said, can you believe this is going on in my country? He, I said, we have to do something about it. We both agreed. And so he took a bus the next day. He took a, a friend of his, who spoke the local dialect of that area, took a bus, went to that area and, and this is before the festival and, uh, said to, and, and talked to a lot of the fathers because the fathers are the ones who were the boss and said, why are you selling your children? And they said, we have no money. We have nothing to live on. We have to sell these girls to support our other children. So what happens is that in February, during this festival, these labor contractors come from the cities motorcycles, leather jackets, and they, they go to the parents and they say, we want your daughter to come to Kathmandu and work for a family as a servant, and they'll treat her like their own daughter, and they'll send her to school, and they'll do everything for her. You won't have to worry, and we'll give you 30 40 50 $60 a year for her labor. And these families, uh, they really had no, almost no alternative, and so they, they agreed. But the girls were just routinely exploited, routinely beaten, made to work from, from uh, early in the morning till after midnight. Almost none were sent to school. And this contract was renewed year after year, and this is how they spent their childhoods. And uh, so Soam asked the fathers, he said, bring your daughter home for the Magi Sekrante Festival. And if you don't send her back, We'll make it worth your while. So uh, he went back again in February, and 27 of the fathers that he had approached had brought their daughters home. 
and they said, okay, if we keep her home, what are you going to do for us? And we had talked about it, but had never come to any agreement as to what, what he should offer the parents to keep the girls at home. And we said, shall we say, we'll pay you whatever the labor contractor paid you or what? But so was a smart guy, and he went around to the villages and talked to the women, and they said, whatever you do, do not give our husbands money because alcoholism was rife in the area, and they would have not have this. The money wouldn't have lasted very long. So they talked a long time, and they finally came up with this plan. The Taurus love pork products, and so they each family got a baby piglet. If they would leave their daughters, it would let, if they allowed their daughters to stay at home or not send them a baby piglet. And then we would take over the girl's education. We would send her to school and we would buy whatever was necessary for schooling. And, uh, so, uh, all 27 fathers took the deal and we started with 27 girls. And then we, we decided at the beginning that we were not going to come in as the big white saviors, that what we would do would be to train the girls themselves to, to abolish this practice. That that's what we decided would be our goal. We wanted to abolish it was called Kamlari, the practice of Kamlari. <clears throat> so we trained the girls in advocacy. We brought six of them to Kathmandu and they worked with a facilitator at a drama school and they created these incredible plays about how, how they suffered when they were, uh, when they were servants. I mean, there, there was the evil, the evil father and the, 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 the insulting children and so forth. And there was no, at that time, no electricity in most of the villages. And so this was the only game in town and they would act these super dramatic plays out. And because they themselves had had this experience, there were real tears. And the audience was crying because often the parents didn't know how those girls were treated. The girls were, did say. So that was one thing. We had uh, a radio program. The farmers had little uh, FM radios so they could listen to it. Uh, on Sunday nights, we had radio program. We had articles on, tel we had articles on newspapers, television. We arranged for the girls to come to uh, Kathmandu and march and you know, stop traffic and morning traffic rush and for them to meet high political leaders and tell them why, and tell them that they needed to outlaw this practice. And they marched and they gave out leaflets and they were the most enthusiastic activists. They'd go to the bus station at Magi and see if any young girl was getting on with a man, getting on a bus. And then they would come and we had clipboards and they would, you know, talk about ask her questions and ask the person she was with questions. And then we started ourselves, but then the girls came with us later on rescue missions. We would go to a, um, we would go to a house that had a Kalari in, in Kathmandu and say, and, and tell them that this, that this is what, it was really an illegal practice by international law, but not local law, <clears throat> that this was illegal and that we were there to take the girl home. And sometimes there was opposition, often there was opposition, but then we would, we would call the police. And, uh, then, uh, very often later on, um, uh, uh, the girls would come with us and later on they did it themselves. And so we rescued lots and lots and lots of girls who ended up uh, uh, going home.
And uh, we filed a lot of lawsuits against local lawsuits, against landlords. Every, it's very telling, every boss in that area is called a landlord, against land, uh, landlords who wouldn't release their, their daughters, their, their uh, servants. So this went on for, uh, let's see, 13 years before the government finally, finally, finally outlawed the practice. Uh, so today, if the practice is gone, no more girls are being sold. But we were act we started this in 2000, and we just withdrew in 2020 because it not, wasn't enough to just to bring the girls home. That we had to be sure that they were that they were educated, and we had uh, we we put them in school. And if they were too old, some of the girls had never been to school. They were 17 years old. Uh, we put them in school uh, and, and wanted to work. And so we had a, a very intensive 90-day literacy program for them and then did vocational training. And we, uh, for those, at the, the seven years after the practice was outlawed, we did a lot of training of the girls for jobs. And they're, they're very entrepreneurial, very smart. And some, many of those girls are now supporting the families that sold them. And, they, and many have gone to college. Uh, we've got our first law school graduate last year. Wow. Um, and another one in the pipeline, and I'm sure a lot more. And so they were very, it, it, it was a very, very successful program. And I'm very proud of it. And I'm especially proud because the girls themselves had such a huge uh, part in, in, uh, freeing themselves. Talking so the I think with... ultimately it was o almost 13,000 girls that we saved. It's a huge number, almost unbelievable that you were able to do so much and truly empowering where you gave them the skills that they needed to get out of this whole system. One question I have is that right. injustice around the world is often justified as just the way we do things here. How did you overcome that massive cultural obstacle and achieve what you've achieved? Yes, and that was that was that's exactly it. People would say, "Well, um, my wife, uh, my wife was bonded. Her mother was bonded. There's nothing wrong with it." And so we had to, we had to dramatize what these girls because they they love their their daughters. What these were girls were we're going through with these, with these employers. And, and after that, and, and with all the publicity about, about abuses, there were sexual abuses all the time, all kinds of terrible things. In fact, there was one, <clears throat> we, there was one, and sometimes girls spent their entire childhood bonded away like that. There was one special that I liked, especially it was a, a, a girl who kept being raped by her employer. And she had had several abortions at his insistence. And finally, she gave birth to a child. And, and she named the employer, who was the headmaster of the school, of the local school, as the father. And he denied it. And we, we took him to court. And they had a DNA test. And sure enough, he was a, he was a father. And so he, the court said he had to support the child for, for the rest of the child's childhood. <laughs> Wow, I love that. I love that story. Just uh, <clears throat> so, yes, well, it, that's it's it's overcoming this uh, this uh, idea that this is there's nothing wrong with this that that had to be dramatized and brought home to these people. 
and I must say that they 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 picked it up very well because they loved one, their children and they didn't didn't want things to happen. One little detail that I think is important is, like you mentioned, they love pork products, so you gave them piglets. Or the, many of the <laughs> Kamlari who came back from the cities would wear these fancy dresses that were common in the villages, and so you gave them the dresses as well, yeah. so that. It wasn't the. I mean, you yeah. paid attention to all you, the, all the yeah, different the labor aspects. contractors would bring girls from the city when they're buying girls to so look if you if if you come you're going to get these beautiful clothes, and so we decided okay we would buy them beautiful clothes not to go, <laughs> and right. we bought them the the local the local costume is is gorgeous, and so we bought all, all these girls who we rescued or persuaded not to go. A, a, a beautiful dress. That's brilliant. Local well, dress. you shared one of these stories, but I, I was just saying that you've given many interviews over the years and had to tell abbreviated versions of your stories countless times. And for the many children you've helped in Nepal, you've told their stories also, but short versions. What are some moments that are often left out that you wish you had the time to share? Oh, I wish I had the time to share what the environment is at our children's homes, how, how the children love each other and support each other and are kind to each other and how they are when a new child comes in, <clears throat> traumatized, you know, very, very, very sad. And they just gather around and just offer everything to them. And they're the, like, like the most tender, tender, tender sisters and brothers until, and and very tolerant. I mean, sometimes a child is so traumatized they don't talk for a year, and and they're so tolerant and so so good to each other, and I really admire that. Each of the houses has twenty children, and is there's a resident we call them uncle and auntie. There's a resident couple who love children, and they're they're the they're the the, the real stand-in for parents. I mean, they they handle all the problems with the children and. They're so kind to them and so understanding. And um, we've never had a problem with drugs. We've never had a problem with alcohol. Uh, it's just really amazing how, how when treated or uh, when kids are treated well and wisely, how they blossom. Well, um, I think that's a perfect place to pause. We're going to take another quick break, but we'll be right back with Olga Murray on Hello Sonoma. Welcome back to Hello Sonoma. I'm here with my guest, Olga Murray. So, Olga, I was fortunate enough to read your book called Olga's Promise, which talks about your story to found the Nepal Youth Foundation. But the short story is that essentially you're approaching 60 years old and you went for a trek in Nepal for a sense of adventure, subconsciously maybe searching for something to do in retirement. And one evening you, were, you fell in love with the, with the country of Nepal through that journey. And one evening you were lying in your sleeping bag. You said, in the darkness of the tent, I suddenly knew out of the blue, in a lightning moment, what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. Right then, I made a promise to myself that I would find a way to educate Nepali children. Now, your book called Olga's Promise, named after that promise you made that night in the tent, covers many aspects of your life, from your arrival from Romania to the United States, to your cross-country travels, to your college years, to law, and finally, the foundation. What was it like to write this kind of book that encapsulated most of your life? 
I hated it. <laughs> I didn't. I really didn't. It was it was a lot of uh, you know searching in the recesses of my mind and getting it down on paper and in the right order. I didn't like writing it at all, but now I'm glad it's down because people who want to know the history of the foundation have something to look to. But I didn't like the process at all. I have to say, <laughs> did I it bring up any fun memories? Oh, I you mean of the writing? Yes. Not really, <laughs> not really, not right, not the actual writing of it, except that I had a, 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 a I had a co-author and uh, we didn't, uh, it was, it's very hard to write a book with another person. And uh, we didn't have one single, we disagreed fairly often, but there wasn't a harsh word between us. And I thought I appreciated that. That was, it was a good process. One thing I've learned from the book is that you think you've always been an unconventional person. At 17 years old, you left, you left home completely against everyone's expectations, by train, no less, to Los Angeles, and you got an office job to support yourself. Then for the next three years, you spent traveling around the, around the United States, including spending time on a dude ranch in Colorado, where never having ridden a horse before, you galloped across the plains to a campfire where you ate corns, beans, and hot dog around the fire. You said of that particular experience, that the evening was the highlight of my youth. It was the kind of adventure I longed for those afternoons I spent in Grand Central Station watching the destination boards. Where do you think that sense of adventure came from? You know, I don't, I don't know. I, uh, but I, uh, ever since I was, oh, eight or nine years old, I kept thinking about the wider world and, uh, and wanting to experience it. And I, I graduated from high school at the age of 16 in January, 1942, one month after Pearl Harbor. And, uh, so there was, there were, there, there were practically no commercial flights then. And, uh, I don't know, I don't know where it came from, but I, I can remember <laughs> when I was in high school, uh, one of my high school classmates, brother, uh, was stationed with the army in Trinidad and gave a, a little talk in class about Trinidad. And all I could talk about when I came home for days and days was Trinidad. So my, my family called me Trinidad for a while <laughs> because it was, it was, I just had this longing to see other places. And as, as I said in the book, I would sit in Grand Central Station and watch the, the destination board. They, they would uh, say, okay, the train is leaving for Keokuk, Iowa. The train is leaving for Indianapolis, and I would sigh. I wanted so much to go to all these very glamorous places. <laughs> and and I've traveled a lot now uh, since I've since I've uh, grown up. Yes, you certainly have. You, you you just gave us a little taste in the book. You mentioned a couple of adventures I thought were fantastic. First was traveling alone from Delhi. You did a camel trek in the Tar Desert. And then you also made friendships with a man you later discovered was one of the most violent criminals in the country. Can you tell us a little bit about that adventure? Oh, my. Oh, yes. Well, this man was actually the brother of a man in San, young man in San Francisco who I knew not well. And when he found out that I was going to his part of the world, he said, oh, you must meet my brother. He's very influential and he'll show you around. So I, I said, sure. So he, so he gave me his uh, phone number and, and wrote to him. And uh, so when I got to Jaipur, 
that he was, well, actually he, he came to see me even before when I was in the desert, there was a, a four wheel drive vehicle coming on these camels, N nothing around, nothing around two or three or four days. And then this four wheel drive vehicle comes at the through the desert and, and stops. And this man gets out, introduces himself. He has two cold bottles of water and gives me the water. And he said, I'm so-and-so and, and, uh, I've come to give you some cold water. And then he gets back in the vehicle and goes off. And there were like 12 people on this trek and they kept saying, who are you? Anyway, <laughs> anyway, it's a long story how we got there. But finally we took the plane from a place called Jaipur to Jaipur where he lived. And while we were on the airplane, while we were en route, Indira Gandhi was assassinated. And when I arrived, when we arrived in Jaipur, everything was just, it was like the Kennedy assassination, only almost more so. And, and all transportation stopped and all everything, everything just absolutely stopped. And the whole country was in mourning and, uh, he was married, had two children and he would pick me up at my hotel and take me to his house every day. And it was like the, after the Kennedy assassination, everybody's glued to the television sets, watching the, the, the ceremony of the, the funeral and the so forth. So one day I said something like, oh, Jaipur has a famous zoo. It's too bad. We can't go to the zoo. He said, if you want to go to the zoo, you will go to the zoo. And I thought, but it's closed. He said, don't worry. <laughs> so he picks me up and we go to the zoo and I got home to my hotel and the young woman at the desk said, do you know who's picking you up every day? Where are you going with him? She said, he's a murderer. She said, yes, he's a murderer. He spent time in prison for murders. So how do you ask a guy if he's a murderer? But somehow <laughs> or other, I, I managed to ask something. I, I, I don't know how I did it. And he said, oh yes, when I was a student, I belonged to this gang and, and they, they pinned it on me and I spent a couple of years in prison. And I, I realized I, he, his occupation was very unclear to me. And I realized I saw at night by the kitchen door, people coming to the back door and a lot of money changing hands. <laughs> and I thought, hmm, you know, I don't know about you. So then after four days, there was a complete stoppage of all traffic, all, all, more, all forms of transit. And so after four or five days, all the uh, it, it, things started to pick up again. And I had a ticket to go to Kathmandu for the first time. And of, and of course, the Air India, the, the, the place was just jammed. Everybody wanted to go. So we, I said, I, I, I don't know how I'm going to use this ticket because of uh, the situation. And he said, don't worry. And so he takes me to, to Air India. The outside of the sidewalk was jammed with people. We walk in and the crowd separate, separate as we walk like we were the, the king. And he gets to the counter and he puts my ticket down. He said, give her a ticket. Oh my God. They give me a ticket. And I got on the plane and I thought to myself, hmm, very, this guy's problematic. <laughs> and so he said, oh, I'd love to visit you sometime. What's your address? I said, post office box. <laughs> anyway, it sounds incredible, but it's absolute truth. 
I saw this guy two more times. I was in Jaipur 15 years later and 30 years later, and he found me. He found me. Wow. And, and anyway, it was a, uh, it was a, it was a, a very scary situation because then later on, I found out that he had been the, the head of a gang, uh, and that would, that would kill on, on, um, orders. I mean, if you had a lawsuit against somebody and they, uh, and they, uh, opposed you, then he, he, you could hire him to kill them. And he, I guess he's been, anyway. And and thirty when I went thirty years later, he found me. Uh, I I uh, well no that not that's not true actually. I was with my son and daughter in law uh, about five years ago, and the place where we stayed, the old house, the old homeowners. I asked him if he knew this guy. He said, "Everybody knows this guy." I said, "Is he still alive?" He said, "Of course he's alive. You want me to call him?" I said, "Sure." So we called him, and the minute I got on the phone, he said, hello, Olga Didi. He knew who I was. <laughs> <laughs> well, besides the impact that you've clearly left on this mysterious man in Jaipur, you've touched the lives of countless children and families. The little kids call you mommy, and the older ones call you mom. I'm curious, who are some people in your life that you consider special or who have left a mark on you? Oh, well, my parents, of course, and my, my immediate family, uh, our relationship was, was really good. My, I have I had very wise parents. They were not wealthy and they were not well-educated, but, uh, but they've read. So they were well-educated in that sense, but they were not well-educated as far as the class the schooling was concerned. And they were very wise and understanding, but quite, quite strict. I mean, I grew up in a strict European household, and my parents were, were I, I, I credit them for, for almost everything. And then as I grew up, you know, the man I married had a big effect on me. He just opened up a different life that I didn't know existed. Part of it was um, the outdoors. I mean, I had just walked on the streets of New York. I'd never done any athletic thing in it. When I married him, he strapped a 40 pound pack to my back and said, let's go. And we would, you know, hike backpack in the Sierras and he would take me skiing and sailing. And we did all kinds of wonderful things. And, and, and my friends, my friends as well. I have many close friends and, and, and many of them have, have had a big effect on my life. So I would say my, my parents and my, my husband were the main ones. Those are marvelous people to, to have in your life. So one thing I'm curious about is that, you know, nowadays many young people are searching for something that'll, their life purpose or something that they can do that'll be really beneficial. And you said once that you don't have to go halfway across the world to find your calling. The opportunities to help others are endless. There's no better way to enrich your life than to help others. So as someone in your 90s, what advice would you give to a young person about life today? Well, you know, I really feel a little sorry for young people trying to decide what they want their lives to be. It's not, it's not an easy decision to make. It's very difficult to know where you fit in and what would give you satisfaction. I think making a living is very important. 
Uh, and I, I had the example from my father. My father made furniture for a living, but he was really, he was really an artist by temperament. And he, um, he was passionate about things that he did. I mean, it wasn't just like a little hobby on the side. He made a living making furniture, which he liked, but then he, he played the cello into his, into his eighties, but 85, he was still taking cello lessons. He was very involved with photography. He was a very, very, very good and passionate chess player. And he was a, a, an obsessed gardener. And he did all these things. He found, he found joy in so many different things. And he, he enjoyed what he did work. He was an indifferent businessman. I, I'm, I think if it hadn't been for my mother, we would have starved, <laughs> but, but, but he found pleasure in so many, so many different things. So I, I often tell young people who want to go into the arts that, that, you know, if, if they tried for a while and had not been successful, rather than, than spending their whole life obsessed with doing it as a career, it can be very, very satisfying to do it, uh, on the side as, as an important part of your life. That, that, that's one thing I think I, I, I mean, I know lots of young people who want to do things that they can't make a living at. And I think that's some advice that, that a young people need. Wonderful. I would give them. That's great advice. Well, I could, I have so many more questions that I could ask you, Olga, but I think we've reached our time limit here. So uh, it's a good place to end, I think. Thank you so much for being on the show, Olga. Thank you. Thank you, Francisco. I enjoyed it very much. It really was a tremendous pleasure getting to talk with Olga Murray about some of her many life's journeys. I think we just scratched the surface. But alas, we reached the end of the episode. And though it is the end, remember, it's not goodbye. It's hello, Sonoma. 